Try not to be jealous of my handwriting. <laughs> we are in church after all. Well, uh, as sobering as our scripture reading was and is, I uh, am excited to preach to you today from the Gospel of Mark, the seventh chapter. I think it is one of the more important things that Christians can hear uh, on any given Sunday when they hear the word preached. I think that there are uh, important things in this text that would uh, address each of us in a different way, but uh, seriously. And so I, I've been praying this week that, that the Lord would have prepared your heart, that, that you will be attentive and receptive and even anxious to hear what the Lord has for you today in the text. But as you can see on our uh, whiteboard here, I want to introduce you to Sun Valley Sam. Look how great of a guy Sun Valley Sam is here. He's uh, probably one of the more respected attenders, maybe even members here at this church. He's He's got the, the gold star every year for perfect attendance, um, even in prayer meetings. He shows up to prayer meetings. I mean, this guy is committed. He, he's been to Papalote on our missions trip. I think he's been to Othello a couple times. Uh, he shows up at our work days whenever we have those, he serves in our local affiliates. He knows theology. He gives. He reads the Bible. He, he's a good husband. Even loves the USA, probably voted Republican. I mean, you got no famous sins. You guys in the front over here can't see it, but he has no famous sins. At least that we know of. He's hidden them up to this point. The unfortunate thing about Sun Valley Sam is he's a lot like his first century counterpart, uh, the Pharisee. He's a 21st century Pharisee. Uh, he's doing all that he's doing so that we'll see him doing it. He, he really doesn't know Christ personally. And yet he sits here week after week after week and pretends. And the scary thing is, he probably doesn't even know he's pretending. Sun Valley Sam is one of the most respected members of our church Many of us wish that we had his talents and passions. Um, but like his first century counterparts, Sun Valley Sam has a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 10. And just like the first century Pharisee, Sun Valley Sam, we, we can have a passion for God, just like both of these. We can check all the right boxes and still not know God personally. How frightening is that? Um, we can know about God. And we can even have good conversations about Jesus and doctrine and theology. Probably lead the conversation in our small groups. And yet be outside of God's grace. <laughs> we can be deceived. Now, I'm going to have to walk a fine line this morning because I really don't want to scare you, uh, for those of you who are tender in your faith. Uh, I would like to 
scare the bejeebies out of those who actually fit into this category and don't know it. But I can't look into your heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so I've been praying that he would do just that this morning as we work through this passage. But the question that I think is um, boring in on me is how can it be that a person could be doing all these things and still not know Christ? Um, how, how can we, to, to get around this subject, um, examine ourselves to the point that where we make sure that we aren't suffering from the same lethal spiritual disorder as our local Pharisee, Sun Valley Sam, and his first century counterparts, the actual Pharisees of Israel. How can we avoid it? Well, our text today tells us, Jesus tells us. We'll be quoting Jesus this morning. But let me give you some background information before we dive into the text. Jesus' ministry had hit a high watermark after he had fed the 5,000. There were literally hundreds of thousands of people following him around, uh, pretending uh, to be his disciples. But now, after the 5,000, uh, feeding of the 5,000, and his rejection of their pursuit of him to be their political Messiah, his popularity began to wane, especially as it was combined with the, the, the negative press from the religious leaders. So his, the peak of his ministry had reached its zenith in Galilee in the first half, first 18 months of his ministry. All this happened that I just described, and now he's starting to drift down to less of a ministry in at least the world's eyes. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to enter the seventh chapter of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And if, if you would, I want you to be saying a prayer throughout and often this sermon, asking God to keep you attentive and pliable. All right, so if you think of it, as you're sitting there and your mind wants to drift elsewhere, just pray that God would, by his spirit, keep you attentive and pliable. But let's, let's listen to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, 
You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God and your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is one of the most biting condemnations Jesus ever gave in the New Testament. And it's biting because it applies to us, not them. It applied to them too, but it hits us squarely between the eyes as modern-day evangelical American Christians. In the story, Mark's revealing what opposition to Jesus looks like. We might say, you know, opposition to Jesus is that policy or, or, or that particular attitude. And those enemies of the church and of Christ Jesus come to find out um, we are the opposition. At least we can be. So it's not just about the opposition to Jesus in his day, but the opposition to Jesus in our day that is on the table. So I want you to pay special attention today to be sure that your Christianity isn't unknowingly opposed to Jesus. Listen to that. I want you to pay close attention today to make sure that your Christianity isn't opposed to Christ. Many times professing Christians get caught up in doing all the right things while their hearts drift away from Christ. It's easier than you think to have this happen in our day. So let's unpack this text uh, prayerfully. First, the accusation from legalism I want you to notice. The religious leaders in, the, in this story today were openly hostile towards Jesus. In fact, all the religious leaders of Jesus' days were, were hostile towards Jesus. They were looking for any opportunity, every opportunity, to attack him, accuse him, shame him. Uh, they knew that Jesus believed and taught against um, their leadership, their shepherding. The scribes that it mentions there um, were actually uh, hostile to Jesus as well. They were the ones sent from Jerusalem. Uh, they were actually considered to be the heavy hitters the theological hitmen in Jesus' day. If the scribes from Jerusalem showed up, you're in trouble. Basically is how it went. Like getting called into the principal's office times 1,000. Uh, so the people of Galilee, the religious leaders of Galilee, were struggling with containing Jesus, so they called on the hitmen from Jerusalem to come up. Those trained in the law, those men called scribes who were experts in the law, who had it memorized literally word for word to come up and destroy this upstart preacher named Jesus. And so here they came. As we saw in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the religious leaders in the north and Galilee had already determined to do everything they could to kill Jesus. 
That's religious leaders were interested in killing Jesus back in Mark 3. So what was the issue this time? What was the opportunity that was presented? In this text, it says it was ceremonial washing. The, the failure to perform ceremonial hand washing before a meal was a wonderful opportunity for these experts in the law, these religious leaders. And it's important to remember that this particular cleansing, this ceremonial cleansing, was tradition, not God's law. All right? And we've ran into this before, haven't we, with Christ? Yes. So it was about holding traditional practices of the religious legalist in attempts to impress man and maybe by chance even God, impress him. This practice wasn't about ensuring clean hands before eating. It had nothing to do with hygiene. It was more involved than that. And after I describe for you the practice, you'll understand. So there was three parts to the ceremonial cleansing. Uh, you needed someone to help you with this if you were going to do it right. The first part was you would hold your fingers up over a basin and your friend or partner would pour water over your hands and then you would turn your fingers down and they'd pour water over your hands so it runs off your fingertips and then you would use your fist, the third part, as they poured water over your hand to scrub this hand and then make a fist and scrub that hand with your fist. Then you were ready and not until then were you ready. The really holy people, these scribes and Pharisees, would repeat this process between every course of every meal. It took them a long time to eat. So why was the issue of hand washing so important to the religious leaders of Jesus' day? Well, I'm going to get to the bottom line here in a minute, but for starters, it may or may not have been important to all of them, but they all saw that this was an opportunity to nail Jesus. He wasn't keeping to the traditions Neither were his disciples. Which brings us to the first subpoint, and that is that legalists always compare. They always compare themselves with others, or others with themselves. You know that you're on legalistic ground if you find yourself comparing yourself to other people all the time. Am I doing it like so-and-so, or are they doing it like me? Is, are we doing it like them? constant barrage of comparison is the first sign that you're a legalist. And of course, keep in mind, this sermon is for us. These Pharisees are long gone. The Pharisees under consideration are in this room. All right? Including me, by the way. <laughs> I have no one particularly in mind, so if you get a little uncomfortable, it's the Holy Spirit. So what's amazing is that the religious leaders were, were more committed to tradition than they were to God's word, literally. The Mishnah, which was a collection of Jewish traditions in the Talmud, records this. Listen to this quote, quote from the Mishnah. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. 
Did you catch that? Let me read it again. It is a greater offense. This is in the Mishnah. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture. It's more important that you enter our sanctuary the way we say than to listen to God's word that's going to be preached while you're in here. (laughs) So our standard, of course, isn't the words of men, no matter who they are, Mishnah or MacArthur, the, the standard is God's word, right? This is what Jesus said at the end of the text. The practice of hand washing had been handed down from the fathers and was revered for centuries. The, the Jews called tradition the fence of the law. It was not the law of Moses that protected their tradition, but it was tradition that protected the law of Moses, so they thought. They had it completely backwards. So when the Jews practiced this particular this tradition of hand washing, they were declaring that they were a special people. They weren't unclean. They were clean. They were God's people, clean people. So if a Jew, as mentioned here by Mark, I think, I'm not sure which verse here, verse 4 um, in chapter 7, if the Jews went to the market to buy food, he might get defiled by a Gentile by walking in his shadow, literally. You walk through the shadow of a Gentile, you're defiled. Uh, That might happen, or even worse, if it's a Samaritan, and you get near to them, you're defiled. And so the tradition was begun centuries before to remind the Jews that they were God's elect people. They were supposed to be separate. They were supposed to be pure. They were supposed to be clean. This tradition of hand washing began. It's a good reminder that we're supposed to be separate, that we're supposed to be different than the world, which is why the tradition began but it degenerated into an empty ritual and resulted in religious pride, isolation, and hard hearts. It lost total meaning to the people who were doing it. And I think this is a warning to us who practice good spiritual disciplines, who practice good spiritual disciplines. A good thing can turn into a spiritually dangerous thing if we're not careful, like showing up to church. These washings not only indicated a wrong attitude towards non-Jews, they're dirty people, uh, but they also conveyed a wrong idea of what true holiness was and (laughs) the nature of sin, actually. If you just wash your hands a certain way, you're better than that guy, was really the attitude. Legalists always compare themselves to others, always. So, to bring this home to you and me, is this this danger sign in your life? Are you constantly comparing yourself to others, thinking that they need to be a little more like me? Or are you constantly comparing us to another group, another church. We ought to be more like them. Secondly, what we see here from Jesus's response to the question of the scribes and Pharisees is that legalists check boxes. Legalists check boxes. 
<clears throat> I don't know where I began this practice, but sometime in high school or, or college, I used to write to-do lists with a little box. I drew a little box beside the to-do list. Maybe it was my dad that was doing it, I don't remember, but I'd write a to-do in a box, write a to-do in a box, and when I did those things, I checked that box. Done. Off the list, can forget about it. We do that spiritually, don't we? That, that's what's in view here in this story. Jesus made clear in his Sermon on the Mount that true holiness is a matter of inward affection. Inward affection, inward attitudes, not outward actions, not, not checking off boxes. God's word repeatedly declares that only, that only worship that comes from the heart is pleasing to God. If it comes from anywhere else, it's not pleasing to God. Our study of Psalm 119 a while back highlighted that reality. That's what the psalm is about. Genuine worship. Moses also mentioned it a few times. Remember Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, Moses wrote, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Underline heart with all your soul, with all your might. What matters is the inward affections, not the outward demonstrations of those affections, the inward affections. God has never been impressed with external things. Remember what Samuel told Saul after he took the place of a priest? To obey Saul is better than sacrifice. And then he went on to say to Saul, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. He's God. He can actually see the condition of our heart. Every time, all day and night. God constantly had to remind Israel of this priority, but they always seemed to struggle with it and drift off, slip off into externalism which leads to hypocrisy and eventually apostasy. And a focus on the externals always leads to hypocrisy and hypocrisy always leads to apostasy. You see, this was so serious in Israel that God raised up prophets throughout Israel's history to address this as the primary sin of Israel. This was their sin externalism. Jeremiah 29, 13 was one of those prophets, and he wrote, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, not all your practices, not all your diligence, all your heart. After a long history of false spirituality and blatant hypocrisy, Jesus shows up on the planet in Israel and addressed it head on here in Mark 7, among other places. He did so because hypocrisy and shallow religion is a stench to God's nostrils. We read of this a few times in the Old Testament. It was part of our, our liturgy earlier in this service. But we also see it in the New Testament. You remember in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaking to the churches. And he says, your lukewarmness, your, your, your externalness in worship makes me want to vomit, is what Jesus said to the churches. 
You see, the Pharisees thought that they could be holy just by checking boxes. I showed up, I gave, I prayed, I sang, let's go home and watch the Seahawks. Or whatever their local football, there's probably a soccer team, but not a football team. <laughs> they, they were doing these things, external things, to impress an onlooker. You see the boxes I've checked? Um, it was all about externals, but Jesus taught that someone who obeys the law externally can still break the law in his heart. You can obey all the law externally. You can check all the boxes and have a stone-cold heart. External defilement has very little to do with the inner person. So the issue was about God's truth versus man's tradition and what constituted true and genuine faith, true and genuine holiness. This was no small issue to Jesus and it should be no small issue to us. Jesus jumped out of his skin to address this one in Mark 7. It ought to mean something to us. The issue lies at the heart of true God-honoring faith. Each of us individually wrestle with this issue, whether you want to admit it publicly or not. We each wrestle with it regularly. And our church must always also wrestle with it as we look at ourselves and our practices, especially um, in our camp, our reformed camp, where we em embrace the, the ancient truths and the revered doctrines of grace in the scriptures, it's easy for us to become Pharisees on the matter. And so we need to do this to ensure that our hearts are in step with Christ, not externals. Um, mindlessly repeating confessions on Sunday morning, for example. Where was your heart this morning when we read this confession on the overhead? Was it on the words of the confession or on the misspelling or on what's in the oven or on the perfume that you can smell from the person behind you? Where was your heart during confession? I don't know, but you and God know. <laughs> The question we need to answer here as a sidelight, and only a sidelight, is this. Is tradition bad? What would you say? No, it's not bad. Tradition usually is good. I mean, tradition is tradition because there's some value to it, right? The problem with tradition becomes when we start forgetting the purpose of the tradition which is so easy to do in the Christian life. Our traditions, whether corporate or private, must always be examined and evaluated to be sure they're leading us closer to Christ. And the minute they stop, then we stop the traditions. God has never been impressed by box checking. Are you checking boxes in your Christian life? Read my Bible, went to church, attended small group, kissed my wife. Box checking. 
I want to name a few that are good traditions, good boxes to check, but can become dangerously ritualized. Prayer, private and corporate. Private and corporate worship, this. Scripture reading, being moral, Bible reading plans. There's one that we easily slip into externalism. Hence, why we check it off once we've read it. <laughs> Who cares if you read it again tomorrow? Well, because we want to get today's done, right? Small group attendance, Sunday morning worship, bare minimum giving to the penny. It's to the penny. <laughs> There's legalism that we see in this text. And now let's look at the expose from Jesus. The expose from Jesus is where there's hope. The word of God always exposes, doesn't it? And in this story, in this case, and I think in every case, Jesus is the word of God in flesh. John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Jesus in the flesh is the word of God. But we also have the written word of God in front of us that reveals the spirit of Christ, the desires of Christ, the commands of Christ, the love of Christ. This is the written word reflecting the word in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Both Jesus and the scriptures always drive and never stop until they get to the inner person to break up the fallow ground that exists in all of us. To expose affections, motives, thoughts, intents. This is what the Word of God does, both the person and the Scripture. Listen to Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It drives right to the core of our being, the person of Christ and the word of Christ. We need to saturate our minds with God's word. We need to know Jesus Christ intimately. We need to know his word thoroughly. We need to pray and ask God to keep our hearts receptive, pliable, submissive, and joyful through it all. Notice that Jesus didn't answer the question of the Pharisees, at least not here. He would do that later. But what did Jesus do? He directed his comments to the heart of the problem, didn't he? Yeah. He addressed the root. And he did this by taking them to the scriptures, which is a good pattern. Starting in Isaiah, he says... Well, did I, verse 6, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites? There's a way to, you know, <laughs> make friends and influence people. Hey, you bums, listen up. I can't remember starting a sermon that way, but I'm trying to get you to listen for the next few minutes. 
not Jesus. Hey, hypocrites, listen up, is what he said here. So he takes them to the scriptures, starting here in Isaiah. So let's look at the exposition from Isaiah in verses 6 through 8. And what, a, what an indictment this was, quoting from Isaiah, one of their more famous prophets. It went to the center of their spiritual problem. Look what he said. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. They teach the doctrines, they teach as doctrine, as truth, the commandments of men, the traditions. This is what Isaiah said, Jesus quoted about the men standing in front of him. Friends, um, Isaiah was powerfully communicating that God has no interest in make-believe religion. He, he detests playing church. Isaiah detested it. Jesus detested it. God detests it. We ought to run from it. I think this shouts a wake-up call to us. We constantly need to check our hearts in order to avoid playing church sitting here and ritualistically repeating words because everybody around us is doing the same thing. The religious leaders thought and taught that if you just said the right words, repeated the right rituals, hands up, hands down, rubbing, and you're good. Jesus said no. Isaiah said no. You've missed the mark by a long shot. Where's your heart? See, if our hearts aren't engaged, we aren't worshiping. I want you to listen attentively here the next couple of minutes. If your hearts are not engaged, you're not worshiping. Sun Valley Sam never worships. His heart is never engaged. So being in church isn't worship. Singing isn't worship. Sitting through a sermon and not going to sleep isn't worship. Those things only become worship once your heart is engaged. No engagement, no worship. It's that simple. If, it's, if your heart is drifting off towards other things, that's the second you've ceased to worship. Only when you become, when you come into our service on Sunday morning with a humble, receptive, loving, and eager heart, do these things we do here actually become worship. Listen to the Puritan Thomas Brooks on the matter. <clears throat> the end must be as noble as the means, or else man may be undone for all his doings. All this stuff we do every Sunday here. A man's most glorious actions, praying, singing, Bible reading, listening to sermons, glorious actions will at last be found to be but glorious sins. If he hath made himself and not the glory of God, the end of those actions. If you're here to check boxes, to compare with others, those things that we count as virtues will be vices and sins when that day comes, we stand before Christ. You get no brownie points, no credit for being here with a hard, calloused heart. 
Another Puritan, Samuel Graddock, states that religious legalism is actually mocking God. Hmm. Scary territory, isn't it? Listen to true worship found in the Psalms. Psalm 42.1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Does your soul pant for God? I can't wait to be in the Lord's presence. Psalm 63.1. Oh God, you are God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Now there's a picture. Psalm 84.2. My soul longs, yet faints for the courts of the Lord. That is the worship of God with the saints. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. There's a picture of authentic worship. You see, God is concerned with the inner being, the true self, true worship flowing from a heart that's been affected by grace is the only worship there is. It's initiated by the Holy Spirit and responding to the good grace of our loving Savior. The converted heart is quick to seek honoring God, submitting to God and his word. When God's word addresses an issue in life, the true worshiper quickly complies. Oh, Lord, forgive me for I were have strayed. Bring back me to your place at your feet in submission and love and joy. True worship and fellowship with God must be directed by God's word, not our pet ideas about God's word. How sad is it to see people practice a religion that actually takes them further away from God? Is that one of the saddest things you've ever heard? You spend your life practicing a religion that actually takes you further from the one you think you're worshiping? Yikes! So what is Jesus' expose here? Verse 7, look at it. They were teaching their own pet doctrines as though it was the word of God. Verse 8, they ignored the commandments of God in order to embrace their own traditions. Traditions are more important than God's word, aren't they? Of course not. This is what legalism does, friends. Its goal, that is legalism's goal, is to look better than the next guy by comparing, by checking boxes, by... Where are you at in your Bible reading plan? Type of questions. The, re- the Jewish religious leaders succumbed to legalism. Hence, we're more concerned about menial tradition than actually pleasing God. They were slaves to traditions. They followed their sinful hearts away from the living and loving God. I think this story highlights the importance of keeping our hearts in tune and in check with God keeping short accounts with him. This story reminds us to always be checking and cross-checking our traditions and our practices, both private and corporate. Mindless religious practices are lethal. They callous the heart. Next we see Jesus' exposition of Exodus in verses 9 through 13. Look at that closely with me. Jesus 
gave an example of the callousness of their hearts um, by using a common practice of theirs to avoid having to support needy family members. Did you catch this? God requires, and this is in the law of God, not traditions of men, but the law of God. God requires everyone to honor, respect, and treat parents with care. That is in God's law, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And then in Exodus 21, this is the exposition of Exodus, Exodus 20 is the command to honor your mother and father, and Exodus 21 is the, ex is the explanation or the expansion of that command. And to not honor is to sin. Part of loving your, and honoring your parents is taking care of them, Moses says in, verse 20, in chapter 21, in their older years, including helping them meet their needs, both financial and physical. This is the law of God. This is not a tradition. Jesus exposed the Pharisees of his day and their sly way of getting around God's desire, God's law, and he did this by pointing to, in order to point out the hardness of their heart. It's what I called the Corbin scheme. Do you see it? He said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own tradition. You want, Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles a father and mother must surely die. That was Exodus 21. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin. That is, I already gave it to God. Sorry for your misfortune, Dad, but all my funds are occupied. Corbin is a Hebrew term that's explained in the parentheses there in verse 11. Things given to God are devoted to God. It's in Jewish tradition, listen to this, how, how heinous this good tradition became. In Jewish tradition, you could pledge your material wealth to God, thereby promising to eventually use all your resources for sacred purposes. So, in order to avoid giving um, anything to my parents who are in need, I would declare to the priest, my resources are Corban. They're given to God, devoted to God, meaning eventually they will all go to God. Sometime or another, they'll all go to God. So, Dad, I'm sorry for your request. I'm sorry you're struggling with rent, with paying electric bills, but all my resources will eventually go to God. So go talk to the welfare office, which they didn't have in Israel. Children were the welfare office, but the principle applies even today with us. When a parent would ask for help, the individual would simply deny the request, claiming, ah, I pledged it to God. Some even use the idea of Corbin, I came across in the commentaries, as a way to get out of the weekly tithe. I can't give to my local church because all my resources eventually are going to go to God's purposes. So, sorry church. And, I mean, as if that's not heinous enough, what could be done according to Jewish law, not God's law, but Jewish law, is you could reverse Corbin for a moment and use your Corbin-designated funds for a trip to Disneyland, if you wanted. And then when you get back, reclaim Corbin. This was going on. Jesus saw it, knew it, and addressed it. What does it say about the condition of the heart? Wow. So the question I have for you is, what Corbin schemes do we have in our own lives? 
Number one, instead of giving financially to your local church, you say that you give your time, talents, and energy. When God's word clearly states, give of your finances. <laughs> well, I just don't have enough. Give of what you have, not of what you don't have. This is the word of God. Secondly, instead of prioritizing and strengthening your daily pursuit of God, your daily spiritual life, you pretend that Sunday morning attendance will suffice for the week. I don't need to open the word of God. I just heard it preached yesterday. I don't need to worry about my prayer life, my this or my that, spiritual things. I, I took care of that last Sunday. Corbin scheme is what that is. Or even vice versa, having listened to a sermon or read a spiritual book during the week fulfills my God-desired expectation to participate in corporate, corporate worship on the weekend. So Sunday morning, we don't need to attend this week because of this, that, or the other thing. Uh, let's not be legalists about this. Isn't that ironic? Using the legalist argument against legalism. Let's not be legalist about moral things. Let's not be legalist about giving, about serving, about holiness. Corbin scheme, Corbin scheme, Corbin scheme. Turning Jesus' teaching against legalism into justification for sin activity is a common Corbin scheme that people with callous hearts regularly practice. How many times have you gotten into a conversation with someone trying to justify their sinful behavior and their response is, let's not be legalists? That is flipping on its head the teaching of Jesus and it fits into the category of a Corbin scheme. How did Jesus expose this? Verse 9, they, he said, reject God's word. Verse 13, they neutralize the word of God, making it powerless. Listen to that. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Huh, what an expose. There's a way out of this, of course, Christian. Um, maybe Pharisee. And of course, the answer is right in front of you. We, we repeat it every single week at Sun Valley. You know it backwards and forward, even if you're a Pharisee. It's called the gospel. It, it, it's what the Bible describes as the gospel. Starting with Repentance. The acknowledgement of a need for Christ, the acknowledgement of a trapping by sin, the acknowledgement of only hope in a Savior. I want you to look at the, look, get your bulletin out right now, and I want you to look at some songs we sang this morning. Look at Rock of Ages. <clears throat> We sing these things on purpose, by the way. This isn't just one of the favorites, so let's sing it. 
we actually are trying to be intentional here. Look at the, the second stanza in Rock of Ages. Not the labor of my hands, not the checking of boxes, can fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal, if you could outdo Sun Valley Sam, could your zeal no respite know? What's the next line? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. What's the answer? The gospel. Look at the third stanza. Nothing in my hand I bring. Leave your checked off list at home. Is what the song is saying, which we sang full of vigor about 30 minutes ago. Turn the page. By the way, this is a strategy against false worship, against legalism, against nauseating God. Look at Jesus paid it all. Do you see the gospel anywhere in there? For nothing good have I whereby your grace to claim. You can't claim grace as your due, or it wouldn't be grace. Look at victory in the Lamb. By the way, you can do this every single Sunday with every single song we sing. Look at the very last stanza in Victory in the Lamb. The strong ones and the weak are the same under his blood. For empty-handed all must come to receive his endless love. So how do we get out of hypocrisy? How do we avoid legalistic approaches to God? By preaching and singing and praying and reciting the gospel every day. This is just an example. When you're standing there singing these songs, instead of doing it mindlessly, oh my goodness, there the gospel is once again. I, I guess I don't get points for being here today. Nothing good have I whereby your grace to claim. Nothing in my hands I bring. None of my zeal can change my picture. Oh, it must all depend on Christ. It must all depend on my humility and submission to him. This is what Paul said in Philippians 3. At one time, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, literally. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee in Jerusalem. So he was a heavy hitter. He was a theological hitman, Paul, the Apostle Paul. He flawlessly, legalistically held to the traditions of the Jews. Anybody read Philippians 3 lately? <laughs> what does Paul say about his traditions, about his legalistic righteousness? Through the grace of God, he said this, I count as loss all of that for the sake of Christ. I count those things as rubbish in order to gain Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, 
He understood that he couldn't get it. Nothing in my hand I bring. That, he says, nothing, ha- not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Period. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. There's the answer. There's how we avoid hypocrisy. There's how we avoid legalism. We throw ourselves on Christ daily. Pray with me. Father, we admit that this struggle to want to impress you, to impress each other, this struggle that we have to want to earn, to be responsible for, these things, Father, are constantly badgering us. By your grace, Lord Jesus, by your converting grace, Holy Spirit, we come once again to the gospel and acknowledge our complete and utter need of our Savior Jesus Christ. I ask, Spirit, that you would continue to exhort and confirm these truths to us as we go our way. Uh, bless us as we, we repent, turn from, run from these ways of thinking, these ways of acting. Help us embrace Christ fully, his grace completely. It is finished. It's in his name we pray. Amen.